Amen. Well, the Lord be with you this morning. Oh, a couple people knew the response. That's an old, ancient Christian greeting. Boaz used it in the Old Testament. Paul used it in the New Testament. And the response is, and also with you. So I'm going to try it again, make sure we're awake this morning. The Lord be with you. Praise the Lord. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you, Sim. And uh, to, uh, to drive down some roads this morning that I've not driven down in probably a decade. And uh, to, uh, to preach in a tent. I've never preached in a tent in February in Ontario before. I have preached in a church uh, in Rwanda that didn't have a roof, and that was an experience. But I can, I can add this uh, to my experiences. My uh, family send their greetings. Some of you know, uh, remember uh, Rebecca. And then we also have a little son, Diggory, and uh, I'm doing a bunch of traveling down this way, and so they weren't able to be here, uh, but they send their love and bring greetings as well from Markdale Baptist Church. Uh, Sim said it's somewhere over there, and he's correct. If you drive three hours that way, uh, Gray County up near Owen Sound and Markdale Baptist Church is right beside Chapman's Ice Cream. So if you eat Chapman's Ice Cream, you can say a prayer for Markdale Baptist Church, and we would be most grateful. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture this morning from Luke chapter 18. And then I will pray and we will reflect on this together this morning. This is uh, where we get our spiritual diet. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we are turning to Luke chapter 18. And we are looking at a short uh, but very punchy, very robust, very important passage, uh, 9 to 14. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's come before the Lord in humility and prayer and ask His blessing upon His Word this morning. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to You, my Rock and my Redeemer. And I pray, gracious Father, not only would you apply this word to my own heart for my own good, but Lord, that you would use it as a blessing among many gathered here today. We pray that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that today would be the day of sanctification too. And we commit these things to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I have in my study a a little book that was given to me by a mathematician, and it was Christian, and he put together a book on numbers in the Bible. And if you read the Bible, you'll come across lots of different numbers that have significance, and I'm not talking about the verses, Uh, things like the number one for one God, things like the number 
three for the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Things like the number seven, that, that perfect number, seven days in the week and, and so on. And uh, we could think of the number 12 even, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles and so on. And, and you can look and, and find and derive meaning and significance from all of these different numbers in Scripture. But another number that I would draw your attention to this morning is the number two. The number two, it's just a small little number. Uh, We see in the story of the ark that two unclean animals go onto the the ark. Uh, We see that there are two different gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate. We see that on either side of the Lord Jesus when He was crucified, there were two criminals. There are lots of instances in the Bible of the number two. And I would put before us this morning that we find this number in our passage and it's an easy way to help us understand uh, and, uh, and get into this passage and see what is going on here. Uh, we see two people, two men. We see two paths, two different ways of salvation that they are considering and pursuing. And then at the very end, we see two principles as well. And I would put before us this morning that we should, in the quietness of our own hearts, ask ourselves this question this morning, which man are we? Or even which man do I want to become? Which path of salvation, one that doesn't ultimately lead to salvation, but one that does, am I on? And ultimately, what principle guides and exemplifies my life? Is it one of pride or is it one of of humility. And the reason why I love this passage, if you're allowed a favorite passage in Scripture, I think it should all be our favorite, but if you're allowed a favorite passage in Scripture, this might be one of mine because it is so rich and so many things that are at the heart of the the Christian and biblical worldview and, and the gospel message and what it means to live out the Christian life can be found right here, tightly, compactly knit together in this beautiful passage. And the context of this passage in Luke 18 is Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He set His face towards Jerusalem and and shortly the the stories are going to change and there are all going to be stories that are happening in Jerusalem. But at this point in time, He's journeying towards Jerusalem and He's speaking often about the Kingdom of God. What is the Kingdom of God? How do we enter the Kingdom of God? And the Kingdom of God in the Bible is simply uh, God's saving reign on earth through Jesus Christ. And so that is what he is talking about. And in verse 9, it says that he tells uh, a parable. A parable is a story that's not true, uh, but that has a spiritual meaning and significance or a moral lesson. Uh, In this case, uh, certainly probably both of those. And he says uh, a parable to some, and he's, he's got this audience in view here, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And we can see in that phrase uh, that these three headings, salvation, state, and status, that their, their, their state, the way they saw themselves anyway, they saw that they were righteous. They saw themselves in terms of salvation, not needing salvation because they were good to go because of their works and ultimately uh, their stature. And it was one of superiority, treating others with Contempt, And we're going to see those three things play out in these 
to individuals. And uh, we can see as Jesus tells this parable that no, 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 that's not the way it works. That if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to do the exact opposite of these things in terms of recognizing your state, uh, the way of salvation, and the stature, how you carry yourself. And so first of all, we see uh, these two people, these two men. And uh, we all know lots of different people, uh, different personalities. We know different people who have different uh, trades. And uh, you know, some pers- one person's a plumber, uh, one's a doctor, one's a farmer, one's a nurse. All of these different, different trades. And these are ultimately externals, right? Uh, what we do externally ultimately doesn't define who we are. Who we are actually flows from our heart. Uh, we will see this morning, and, and Jesus clearly teaches. And so the ingenious nature of what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's taking two examples that on the outside we would expect certain things, and as we get into the story, we see actually this great reversal. And often as Luke uh, tells the story of Jesus' life, he's often using this 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 technique of of a reversal, right? And so, for example, uh, the Christmas story, right? We would expect that Jesus would have been born uh, and and presented to kings, but he's presented to lowly shepherds, right? So we see this great reversal and this theme of salvation in Luke's gospel. And so we consider first the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is one of those terms we often hear uh, when we read the Gospels, the New Testament. Uh, sometimes we don't take uh, opportunity to, to understand who were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a party, uh, a group within Judaism at this time. Uh, there were the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, two main groups. There were also uh, the Essenes who lived off in the desert uh, and sought to be holy. And then there were the Zealots who wanted to rebel against Rome. And there were those four different groups. And the Pharisees developed out of uh, the Levites, and the Levites in the Old Testament were those who were responsible for teaching the people the law. And the thing was that when the temple was destroyed and the Jews went off into exile, how could you be a Jew without the temple? How could you be a Jew without the temple? And the answer was that the Pharisees developed was, well, through faithful observance of the law of God, through piety. And so the Pharisees arose as this group uh, that taught that you need to, to be a faithful Jew. You need to be true to the Word of God. You need to be true to the law of God. But they saw the law of God is so important, and it is. The Word of God is very important. But they began to add things to it. It's called fencing the law. So that if you broke something, you would break a human law rather than God's law. But over time, they became confused in these things. And as Jesus says in Mark 7, 7, uh, in vain do you worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so the law of Moses was meant to be trusted in faith. It was difficult to do, but it was meant to be trusted in faith. But over time, people had come to think, well, I can do this. I can do these things and I will please God through my works. The law was meant to expose their sin, how much they needed the Lord so that they might trust in Him. But over time, there was this development, this evolution where they came to trust in themselves. And they came to be proud. And they came to be self-righteous, seeing themselves as having righteousness rather than needing to obtain righteousness, uh, justness, perfection from 
another. And so they focused on external obedience. And Jesus has a lot to say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, on internal obedience of the, to the Lord from, from the heart. And so the perception of the Pharisee is that he's righteous, that he's okay, that what he does pleases God and earns his favor. Then we have the tax collectors, the second person, the second man in this story. And if you're familiar with the older King James, this is the story of the Pharisee and the publican. And the publican was a a Roman official or or an official in public life. But the actual word here does mean tax collector. It means someone you pay at the end. And so after you've worked hard and after you've had all your expenses, you still have those taxes to pay at the end. And we have lots of taxes in Canada, don't we? Uh, But they also had lots of taxes back in Roman times. Interestingly, they didn't have an income tax, or at least uh, not often, and it wasn't very much even if they did. But they did like to tax things. Hold on it for a moment. Their sales tax, 1% quite a lot of money, 1% is a sales tax. Uh, But they did get you in land taxes, you had to pay 10% of all the produce of your land to the Roman government, and they really got you when goods moved around, which was really bad uh, if you were a merchant, and also really bad if you were poor, and you were having to obtain things that were very costly. And so every time goods transported between harbors or along a road or between Roman districts, there you had to pay a tax. And here came in the tax collector, the tax man. They were representative of the Roman government and they had to collect these taxes. But instead of taking 10 and taking one part as their salary, so to speak, they would take 11 and take two parts as their salary. And so they were unjust. They often skimmed off the money that ought to have gone uh, to, the, to the government and, and took advantage of the people because of their position. And so as a result of this, they were despised. They, they, they weren't a very popular uh, group or profession within the population, especially as it would appear with this man that he appears like Matthew was, a Jewish tax collector, which is even worse because not only are you being dishonest and you're cheating people, that the Romans are the enemies, right? They're the ones who are oppressing us. And so you're, collabor- you're like a traitor, right? You're a traitor. You're, you're working with those who are foreigners and who are oppressing us here in our land. And so they were despised. And this Pharisee has this perception of himself, as we persist in the story, one of unworthiness, one of unrighteousness. He knows that he is a sinner. And so it says in verse 10 that two men, these two men, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they they go up into the temple. And you have to go up because even in Jerusalem, it's a mountain, uh, but the temple mount is even higher than the rest of Jerusalem. So no matter where you are in Jerusalem, you have to go up to the temple mount. And it says that they go into the temple, not meaning the the, the building that the high priests went in, but they, they went into the temple complex, right? The different courts, the courts of the Gentiles, the courts of the women, the courts of the men. And so they are going up into those courts to pray because the temple not only represented worship, the temple not only was for the sacrifice of sins, the temple was under the old covenant, God's presence on earth. It's where he dwelt. 
indwell in our hearts like he does now under the new covenant uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. He dwelt in this place, the temple in Jerusalem, under the old covenant. And so if you wanted to seek the Lord's presence, if you wanted to come before him in prayer, not only did you pray towards Jerusalem, ultimately if you could, you came to the temple in Jerusalem and you got as close to the presence of God as you could. To pray. And prayer is communion with God. It is communication with God. And so they came before the temple. And here we see two different paths. Two different paths of salvation. Imagine with me for a moment uh, two different scenarios. Uh, Two different men who fell into two different pits. The first man falls into the pit and he says, Aha! I've got it, I can get myself out of this pit. And he tries to climb up using the roots and the branches that are in the earth. He tries scrambling, he tries jumping, he tries even a running jump, and he can't get out of the pit. And people come along and offer to help him, but he's too proud saying, no, I can do it, I can get out of the pit. That would be a way of salvation or trying to save yourself anyway that we would call works righteousness. Then there's another man. He's fallen into a pit and it's so deep and he knows that. He knows he's in trouble. He doesn't waste his time. He calls for help. And the first person who comes along and offers to help, he says, yes, please help me. And a rope's thrown down and he's rescued from that pit. Well, in this passage, we see the Pharisee and also the tax collector pursue two very different ways of salvation. The first is the Pharisee, and he sees his state as as being one of righteous. He's self-righteous. And we can see this in our text in a number of different ways. We see it first in his posture, that he is standing, as the Jews used to do, with his head up to heaven, right? And he's talking to God, and his his head is, is facing heaven because he thinks he's okay, He thinks that there is nothing in him that would displease God. And rather than relying upon the Lord and rather than recognizing, no, no, God needs to do things in your life. He thinks that he's done so much for God and he's very proud of it and he is just displaying that in his posture. Also in his position, his his actual geographic position in this story, in this passage, he's by himself. He's by himself so that the crowds of people can see, oh, look at him. He's so holy. He is so special. And notice his prayer as well in the second half of verse 11. He's standing by himself. He's lifted up his his hands to God. And he says, I thank you. And I, and I, and I. And five times in this passage, he uses the word I, and that's not by mistake. Do you know what the middle letter is in the word sin? I. What is the middle letter in the word pride? It is I, right? Self is the problem. And pride we go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 5 which is where it all began all of our troubles pride is defined there in Genesis 3 verse 5 as the desire to be as God that's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with the desire to be as God and so when we are God we are the object of worship when we are God we are the object of service. When we are God, we can decide what is right and what is wrong. And when we are God, we think that we can control all things. All sin flows 
from pride. Pride is the root sin. It's the the mother sin that every sin uh, that you could think of, if you chart it back kind of in terms of the the, the origin of it, it comes back to this sin in Genesis 3-5, which is pride. And we see a lot of pride in our world today. You might have heard this big word uh, that our culture is narcissistic. You've heard that word before, and that's a big word. And it comes from a Greek legend of a man by Narcissus, and he so fell in love with himself because of a failed romance, he, he found his image in a pool, and he just sat there looking at himself, admiring uh, as to how wonderful, how handsome, how strong, how beautiful he was. And our culture is like this. We don't worship the Lord. We worship self. We don't serve others, let alone the church. We serve ourselves and think that other people should serve us. We're living in a culture of entitlement. We are living in an age where it's not God through His Word that determines what's right and wrong. We're going to determine what is right and wrong. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes would be a phrase from judges to describe our narcissistic age. And also, we think that we can control all things from the weather to the government having their hands in things, and even in our own lives, thinking that we are in control. We are living in a proud age. And yet when it comes to salvation, which is the next thing I want us to see from this man here, uh, there is nothing that we can do to gain God's favor. That is His grace, which means His unmerited There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. This man thought that maybe through his ethnicity, uh, from knowing the Bible so well, from uh, doing certain things, acts of piety, that he could please God. But the Bible is very clear that there's nothing we can do to please God. Not how we dress, not how we look, not where we work, not what our profession is, not how many children have or how few children we have, uh, not uh, any of these things. We could make that list very, very long. None of these things will please God such that He will look upon us and grant us salvation, grant us eternal life. Why? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, myself included, every single one of us in this room, this verse describes we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it also says in verse 20, just before that, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It says in Luke um, 6.45, also Mark 7, this, this notion that we don't sin and become sinners. We are sinners, and as a result, we sin. So it's no use like this Pharisee was doing, trying to deal with the externals, like in the, the, the old arcade game, I think from the 80s, Whack-A-Mole, where you had to try to whack the mole, right? You're, you're never actually dealing with the moles deep down in. You're only dealing with the moles that, that came up and showed themselves. We need to deal with our hearts. And if, as sinners, we try to please God through our own works, well, as Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, that all of those righteous deeds, all of those righteous acts, they will be as to the Lord filthy rags. Because even if we have done something right, 
we've still done something that is wrong. And even that thing that we have done right, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, we haven't done with, with faith. And so it is impossible to please God. And so through our works, it is impossible to be declared righteous or just or perfect. Our works only condemn us. Well, now we turn to the tax collector. And we see that his state is one of unrighteousness and he knows it. And he knows it from the get-go. We can see this in terms of um, him standing. It says in our passage that he stands far off. So not out so everybody can see, but back where nobody can see him. Back at the back of the crowd because he feels unworthy to even uh, go any further in approaching God's presence here in the temple. We also see that it says that he doesn't lift up his face. He doesn't pray like the Pharisee prays. He prays perhaps more like this. He's ashamed of his sin. We also see in his piety, and we uh, skipped over the the piety of the, the Pharisee. My apologies. We saw with the Pharisee, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus commends those things in the gospel. But we can see the tax collector's piety here. He beats his breast. Might be the equivalent of uh, sackcloth and ashes. We see beating of their breasts in Luke 23, verse 48 as well. And so he's not boasting like the Pharisee. He is abasing himself because he knows that he is filled with shame and that he is unrighteous. And then we see in his prayer, rather than I, 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 we see that he prays what has been called the sinner's prayer. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the blind man prayed that same prayer to Jesus along the road. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Well, here we can get a glimpse of the tax collector's path of salvation. It says in verse 14, Jesus is saying, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That is, justified, declared just, declared righteous, declared right before God, declared perfect in God's sight. Well, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, it says that he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He did two things that were vitally important. First, he repented of his sin. He recognized that he was a sinner rather than pretending that he was okay. That's the first thing that he did. He had contrition. He had sorrow of heart. And the second thing is he trusted in the Lord. You might say, well, how do we get faith out of this little passage? That if he did not trust in the character and the merciful promises of God, he would never have approached God in the temple. So we can see through his actions that he is trusting in the Lord. And one of my favorite verses from Isaiah 66 verse 2b, meaning the second part, and God says, this is the one to whom I will look, declares the Lord, meaning looking, showing your face, showing favor. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at My Word. We tremble at the Word of God that convicts us of sin, but also points us to forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If we repent of that sin and have humility and come before that message and believe it, 
God promises in His Word, the Gospel message that we will not only receive forgiveness of sins, we will receive the gift of eternal life. This is the wonderful news that we find in the Scriptures. Or to go back to Romans chapter 3 that we alluded to when we were speaking about the way of salvation of the Pharisee. This is what we read in verse 22 and then 25. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. And then down in verse 25a, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so we see in this man, the tax collector, the exact opposite of, of the stature, the, the, the way that, that he, he views himself. He's humble. We see that because of the last phrase that we find in our passage, and that is inferred backward into this man's life, that he is humble, that he recognizes his sin. He casts himself upon the grace of God. And humility is so important. Humility is the exact opposite of pride. And so if pride is the root of every sin, humility is the root of every virtue and good thing in the life of the Christian. And humility might be defined in two ways. That first of all, if pride is the desire to be as God, humility is entire dependence upon God, like we see in the life of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, not looking at the vertical but the horizontal and and relying on Philippians chapter 2, humility is to count others as more significant than yourself. But in either way, God is before self, others are before self, and we come last. We place ourselves last. It's not to think less of yourself. It is to think rightly of yourself in relation to God and to others. And sadly, and I, I've come across this uh, in, in so many people that I talk to when I'm sharing the gospel with them, they have experienced Pharisees who call themselves Christians. And that is a great hindrance, a great millstone to the work of the gospel and evangelism and witness. This is the better way that in humility, when we share the Gospel with someone, when we point someone to the cr- truth of Scripture, it says, and I'm sure you've maybe heard this phrase before, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That we share the Gospel in humility as sinners who by the grace of God have been saved. Humility is the mark of a Christian. That if you want to to know what it means to be orthodox, what it means to be sound in the faith, it is to be humble of heart. Humble of heart. Which brings us to our two principles that we find at the end of our passage this morning. I don't know if you remember this news heading from Australia, from Tasmania back in 2016. They found Sheila the sheep. Do you remember that? The sheep that had been lost for six years, it made international headlines, it had been lost for six years in the, in the wilds of Tasmania, and it had grown so much wool, and there was bark, and there was grass, and there was dirt in that wool, and it was weighing poor Sheila down, and someone found Sheila and cut off that wool, six years worth of wool, and that wool weighed 46 pounds, and then Sheila, rather than kind of kind of floundering around, not really being able to walk. Sheila then was leaping in the stall that I'm free. I can can run now like I used to when I was a little lamb. 
And if we make that story into a parable, that that dirty, heavy wool is like our pride. And it won't get us anywhere, certainly not to heaven. It weighs us down. But when we come to the sheer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lost is found and He forgives us of our sin. He cuts off that wool and He gives us a new life through the Holy Spirit so that we might abound in that state of forgiveness and life like Sheila did when she was put into her pen after being sheared after those so many years. And here at the end of our passage this morning, we find a chorus. And this is a chorus that if you've read through the Bible cover to cover, you will recognize uh, resounds throughout Scripture. Across the pages, from cover to cover, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Or the proud will be brought low, but the humble will be exalted. It's said in different ways in Proverbs and in Psalms and in James and in Peter and in Matthew and here in Luke. This resounding chorus that the proud God will oppose. In hell, ultimately, if we do not repent. Or even as a believer, sometimes through His fatherly discipline. God opposes the proud. And know that if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the God of the universe stands in opposition to you. But He gives grace to the humble. That when we come and repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He gives His unmerited favor. He forgives us and gives us His Spirit. And we have life. And as we walk now as a believer in humility, relying upon the Lord, relying upon His his Word, thinking more of God and others than ourselves, as we walk in humility, He gives more grace. He blesses us in our Christian journey with joy untold. It's interesting in this story. One went up falsely assured of God's grace. And the other went up Casting himself upon the mercy of God, hoping for God's grace. But only one went down to his house justified. And as we've considered these twos in our passage this morning, I would urge you, as would the leaders and members of this church, with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, do not go down to your house today as the Pharisee. Go down humbly from this place to your house today, being like the tax collector, being justified in God's sight. Let's have a moment of quiet reflection, and I'll ask a short blessing upon the message this morning. Father, by your word, you have spoken each to us uniquely. But regardless, we know that Your Word is living and active. And so we pray that You would accomplish Your purposes in our hearts through the proclamation of Your Word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name.